So it's great to be together. We're starting a new series today. We're going to spend nine weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling this series The Search for Meaning. The Search for Meaning. And part of the reason why I wanted to get into the book of Ecclesiastes for nine weeks and to study it for this amount of time is because the book's always been intriguing to me. It is on one hand overly pessimistic about life and on another hand very honest and real about life. And uh, there's a guy uh, named Herman Melville who wrote the book Moby Dick and he said Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books of the Bible because there's sorrow in it is what he said. And so I think Herman Melville was on to something. Ecclesiastes is honest and at the same time I think it's packed full of grace. And so over these next nine weeks, we're going to be taking our, going on a journey ourselves where we're asking the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? What is the point of all of this? And Ecclesiastes will really function as a guide for us, kind of wading into these questions. Nearly every movie or story you've read, movie you've watched or story you've read, has been built around the concept of this search for meaning. It's almost always built around a main character who uh, is looking for something, wanting some sort of purpose in their life, uh, pursuing something. And then they have to overcome immense odds and adversity in order to get the thing that they long for. And the only reason that we have a willingness to endure through a two or a three hour movie or a six or eight hour book reading through it is because we need a character who wants something and will overcome anything to get that. Anything else is just too boring for us to keep up with. And I think it's the same way in life. Now, for instance, one of the greatest movies of all time, I think, follows this kind of story arc of a search. It's most often some of these movies, like this one, for instance, is about a teenager who is the main character who's kind of on the outs of life. They're overlooked. Life is passing them by. They're rather aimless. They're not accomplishing anything. But eventually something comes up in their life and they finally get it. Here's something to pursue and it awakens something in them and they overcome adversity after adversity in order to get to the thing that they want to accomplish. Now you might think I'm talking about Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings. You might think I'm talking about Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. I could be talking about Cinderella in Cinderella. I could be talking about any of those things, but I'm not talking about something that took place in Middle Earth. I'm not talking about a movie that took place in a galaxy far, far away. I'm talking about a movie that took place in Preston, Idaho. What movie? Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) One of the greatest movies of all time. Napoleon Dynamite. We can argue about that if you'd like. But Napoleon, early on in the movie, is a a rather wayward kid, aimless, without purpose. He goes to Alaska in the summers in order to hunt wolverines. His favorite thing in the world is tater tots, and he hoards them, and he does not share them, right? And he thinks a liger is the greatest animal of all time. That is, of course, a lion and a tiger mixed together. That is Napoleon Dynamite. And it isn't until an opportunity shows up at his school in the form of Pedro, 
who's the coolest kid in school. Why? Because he has a mustache. It's not until Pedro shows up and decides that Pedro is going to run for school president that then Napoleon has a purpose in life and allows everything to kind of come together all around this purpose and it changes who he is as a character. And just like in movies and stories, that point of clarity and purpose gave him meaning in life. I think we all long for the same kind of clarifying purpose and meaning in our lives. We want to know that our lives matter. There's psychologists who emphasize and study something called logotherapy. Logotherapy is a term that we're all on our quest for meaning. And it's only when our lives are centered around this purpose that we're willing to endure hardship in order to seek out this meaning and purpose that we have. And it was developed in a guy, by a guy named Viktor Frankl in the late 1900s. He, he lived in Vienna, Austria, and he was working on these concepts, and he wrote them down all in a booklet. Well, Victor was a Jewish man, and in the late 1930s, he was taken in as an inmate, as a Jewish man. And he was sent off to concentration camps. And when he went to the first, he was on the train, he put the booklet in his jacket, hoping that he'd be able to keep it with him during his time as an inmate in these Nazi concentration camps. And he got to Auschwitz, and they took all of his belongings, including all of his clothes, including the jacket that got thrown onto the pile, and he never saw that booklet again. All of these concepts written down. But what he didn't know is that he would have four years in these concentration camps where he was able to put into practice the concepts that he had written down in the book and that were in his mind. And he rewrote the book over and over and over again for four years and eventually published a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book, half of the book is kind of him recounting some of the stories and memories he has from the concentration camps. And then the other half of the book is, how did anybody survive? How did anybody survive? And his point is logotherapy. The people that survived had a purpose and a meaning for their lives that existed beyond those camps that enabled them to survive and to seek out a life beyond it. And so here's how he describes this primary motivational force as having meaning in our lives from the book. He says, man is originally characterized by his search for meaning rather than his search for himself. And so we could stop right there. Almost all of culture today emphasizes that in order to find your life, you search within yourself. He's saying it's actually opposite of that. In order to find yourself, you have to look for meaning, not within yourself. He continues, the more he, this person, forgets himself, giving himself to a cause or another person, the more human he is. And the more he is immersed and absorbed in something or someone other than himself, the more he really becomes himself. And so today we begin our search for meaning, wanting a purpose in our lives, to give our lives significance, fulfillment, hope, joy, to kind of capture it all together. And to do that, to kind of aid us in our search, we're going to study the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the five books of the Bible known as wisdom literature. There is Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Job are known as the five books of wisdom literature. And they're, they're known as wisdom literature because they have stylistic differences 
than most of the other books of the Bible. There's a lot of poetry in these books, and they're primarily focused on seeking out and understanding wisdom. That's their primary focus. Now, Ecclesiastes is going to test us in our understanding of wisdom, because on the surface, it's going to seem rather cynical and pessimistic, not wise. But we have to kind of get through the the surface layer of things to get kind of at the meaning of the book. And so if you have your Bible, you could turn to Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes is right after Psalms and Proverbs. So if you get to like your middle of the Bible and turn a little bit to the right, eventually you'll get there. Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 this morning, but we're only at this point going to read chapter 1. And so here's how it begins. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. If there is anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here long ago already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of the Lord. And like I said, we will kind of get into some of the the key verses in chapter 2 as well. But before we can kind of wade into what's been written here, we have to kind of take a step back and look at some of the foundational components to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a Greek word which essentially means assembly or meeting, which kind of helps us understand its purpose. The purpose of the book is before an assembly of people to present the findings of what I would describe as a research project. And the project is this, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of all of this? And so we could think of this as like a keynote speaker before a crowd of people presenting his findings about his search for the meaning of life. And so the author begins and ends the book, but it's really the teacher in the middle 
who instructs us. It's like the author takes on this persona of the teacher. And the author's goal is to let the teacher deconstruct all the ways that we might find purpose and meaning in life apart from God. So who is this author? Who is this teacher? Well, the Hebrew word that is translated in the NIV to teacher is kohelet, kohelet, which essentially means one who gathers people. In the ESV, it's translated as preacher. Here in the NIV that I read from, it's translated as teacher. Other translations translate that word to philosopher. There's all sorts of different ways to understand it, but it's really one who gathers people in order to instruct them. This author, this teacher, describes himself as the son of David, as the king over Israel and Jerusalem, but never names himself, which of course prompts this question, is it Solomon? Is it Solomon? Now, we don't know, not for sure, but I think based on the evidence, there's nobody else that was the son of David who was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. There's only him. So for, for lack of argument among scholars, we're just going to say Solomon's the author. He becomes the teacher to us and has something to share with us. And based on what we know about Solomon throughout God's word, I think Solomon's probably the perfect person to take on this project. Because early on in his life, as he became king, he wanted to honor the Lord. In 1 Kings 3, he says to God, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And God was pleased with Solomon's heart for leadership, for his people, to govern in a way that was godly and honored the Lord. And God blessed him. Many people believe Solomon was the richest man in the history of the world. If you kind of take his wealth from back then and put it in modern day terms, he was worth $2.1 trillion. He would be the richest man on earth. More than Jeff Bezos, more than Elon Musk, all those guys pale in comparison to Solomon. But his life took a turn as he got older. He began taking on many wives for political gain in order to gain clout with other countries. And he took himself away from the Lord's blessing and began to experience a lot of misery in his life. For instance, 1 Kings 11, it says this about Solomon. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was never fully devoted to the Lord. That's a striking comparison between 1 Kings 3 He honors the Lord. In 1 Kings 11, he's turned toward other things. His heart's been turned away from God. Many Bible scholars believe that Solomon wrote Proverbs and Song of Solomon early on in his life when he was honoring the Lord and living in a place of reflection and intimacy with God. But here, at the end of his life, reflecting back on all of his escapades, this is Solomon's reflection, Ecclesiastes on his life and all he had pursued. And so based, based on what we know about Solomon, a man of incredible wealth, a man of immense earthly wisdom, and a man with considerable power to pursue all of these different ways of valuing life, I think he's the perfect person to be our guide to lead us on this journey of trying to find a life of meaning. And so for today, looking at chapter 1, 
in chapter 2. I just want to, before we just wade into Ecclesiastes, I want to kind of take a big picture look at the book as a whole. And thankfully, Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 set up many of the key themes that we'll be looking at throughout these nine weeks. And so what we're going to do is just kind of look at some of these big picture ideas that Solomon brings up in chapters 1 and 2. And the first comes at us from the very beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's how the NIV translates that verse. But that idea is not just in verse 2. It's all over the book, and it is all over chapters 1 and 2. Here's just a few other examples that kind of relate to verse 2. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, you sense his angst about this. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. It was so meaningless to him, it became grievous to him. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated in the NIV as meaningless, and in the ESV, it's translated to futile. This word is used 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's this Hebrew word, hevel. It's spelled with a letter B, like you see on the screen there, but it's pronounced in Hebrew with a V. So you'll often see it written out with the letter V instead of the letter B. Havel is how it's pronounced. And it essentially means vapor, smoke, something temporary, fleeting, vanity, and meaningless is how the NIV translates it. In the New Testament, this Old Testament word is then translated to a word that means frustration. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, when he says the creation was subjected to frustration. And the picture that Paul is creating for us is that what is before us, the things that we can see and touch and feel that are under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, it's all futile. There's meaningless. It's misleading us away from a life that actually has purpose and meaning. But as we'll see, the conclusion that Solomon says, just because something is meaningless, doesn't mean it doesn't have purpose for us. The ultimate meaning that we seek out under the sun through things here on earth is impossible. Even the richest, wisest man on the face of the planet could not find a life of meaning by pursuing life in this way. So maybe a better understanding for this word, havel, would be smoke. And so I have a candle here to just kind of give us a picture of what happens when we're talking about havel. So if I light a candle and I blow it out, you see smoke coming up. Now, if I try and grab the smoke with my hand, I can grab a little bit, but by the time I get it in my hand, it's gone. It's so fleeting that I might be able to capture some of it in my hand, but as soon as I've done it, the smoke is gone. And pretty soon, all the smoke from this candle will be gone within, you know, 30 seconds of me blowing out the candle. That is Havel, something that is so fleeting that you cannot 
grab a hold of it. It disappears by the time you actually have it in your hand. And I think it's that kind of understanding that Solomon is trying to impart to us about the ways that we pursue life, that everything is so fleeting. And we turn to all these things that are so fleeting and they cannot handle the weight of responsibility that we often place on them to try and make out a sense of meaning of our lives. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes this pursuit of a life of meaning. He says, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, a life of meaning, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. That's what he's describing there. The copy, the echo, or the mirage, that's Havel. The thing that we try and grab onto that isn't actually going to give us what we desire. Maybe I could illustrate this with a a personal example. Growing up, I played golf competitively. I did it as a youth sport growing up. I played on my high school team competitively all four years on the varsity team. And I enjoyed playing golf, but I only enjoyed playing golf when I played well. When I played poorly, I hated golf. And I put all sorts of responsibility on myself to play golf well. I was on the golf team. The only reason you play golf when you're on the golf team is to play golf well. So if you play golf poorly, it's kind of a pointless endeavor. And so I put all of these burdens on playing golf well, and it kind of sucked the joy out of golf. It was only great when I played well, which didn't happen very often because I put all that pressure on myself. Well, I haven't played competitive golf since I was 18 years old, and it took me several years. But by the time I reached my mid-20s, I started to just enjoy golf for golf. It didn't matter whether I played well or whether I played poorly, it was just the joy of being able to play golf. I didn't place the burden of needing it to be a certain thing and act in a certain way in order for it to provide meaning for me. I just enjoyed it. And I think that's something that Solomon is trying to impart to us. Everything is meaningless when we place the ultimate responsibility on something. But everything can be a gift. And I think that's the second theme of Ecclesiastes. Well, I think one that's easily overlooked within the book. Everything is a gift. He describes this in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? Solomon is not being sarcastic. He's not trying to be funny. He's saying, these things are good. When you just embrace them for what they are, these things are good. You might have noticed that the video that was playing before I came up to speak that was kind of highlighting a verse in Ecclesiastes pictured a a person riding in a canoe up and down the river, kind of back and forth. And I think it's this picture that the teacher, Solomon, wants us to understand. That like the ocean, our senses, our lives are fed with more and more and more. But it's never really going anywhere. All of these things, they never really lead somewhere. We never grab a hold of something and it provides ultimate lasting satisfaction forever. 
No, life just kind of continues on, like the ocean waves that just keep coming time and time again. Under the sun, here on earth, there is nothing that will ultimately satisfy on its own. Nothing. That's his point. When you make it the ultimate thing, it sucks the joy and the gift away from it. Everything is a gift. It's not the ultimate gift, but everything can be good. It can be good. And so if we read all of Ecclesiastes as being cynical or pessimistic about life, we've missed the point because that's not his point. He's saying all these things are havel. They're futile. They are fleeting, but they are good. They're good at the same time. They can be a gift to us. In themselves, rightly used, basic things like food and drink and housing and friendships, all of these things are good and bring value to our lives. But when we place the ultimate responsibility on life for meaning on those things, they always fall short. That's what the teacher wants us to understand. I think Jesus highlights this in one of his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount as she's sharing what are known as the Beatitudes. He says to those who are listening, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And he describes himself in a similar way in Matthew 28. He calls himself gentle and lowly. Jesus self-describing himself gentle and lowly in very meek terms. Now, How we often understand meek is somebody who's like down low to the ground, overly humble, maybe even in negative terms in our society. But meek is not somebody who lacks care or intentionality. Somebody who's meek is they have humbled themselves. They no longer need to assert themselves for their own gain. That's what it means to be meek. And so Jesus is saying that the person who has humbled themselves to where they don't need to assert themselves for their own gain, they gain it all. The irony of what Jesus is teaching is he's saying the people that don't desire any gain, they gain it all. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's echoing, echoing exactly what Ecclesiastes is teaching us. It's pushing us to embrace things as a gift, not the ultimate gift, but a gift that can be good, that we can embrace and can bring enjoyment to our lives. And one of the ways that he describes these pursuits, these things that we seek after, is he uses this phrase, under the sun. Everything under the sun. He uses it in verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? This phrase, under the sun, is not used anywhere else in the Bible, only in Ecclesiastes, and it's used 29 times. He's going to use that phrase over and over and over. And the basic thing that he's trying to say is that when we're focused on things under the sun, we're not focused on things above the sun. He's really drawing a comparison that these are the things right in front of us that we can see, touch, and feel, not the things above the sun. And so when we describe this, we're talking about power and popularity and prestige and pleasure and wealth and wisdom and works. All of these things under the sun are havel. They are fleeting. We try and grab a hold of these things, but they never provide the satisfaction and the meaning that we long for them to give. And so the teacher's argument all throughout Ecclesiastes is going to be that the readers, us who are taking part in listening to his research project, they are trying to teach us 
that God is the only giver of permanent satisfaction in life. Not even the doctrines about God, not even the teachings about how to be wise. It's talking about the very person of God, the person of God who longs to be near to us. And so the teacher, Solomon, is kind of anticipating all the questions that we might have, all the ways that we might pursue life. And he's saying, ultimately, that those things are fleeting. They are empty, but it is through God himself that we can experience permanent and satisfying worth in life. He's inviting us, I would describe this kind of transformation of what Solomon wants us to do. We start with this idea of pursuing everything under the sun. And what Solomon is inviting us to do is actually to experience life, everything through the sun. He's talking about life, everything under the sun, all the things that we pursue, and he wants us instead to seek out life, everything through the sun. Paul echoes this idea in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Everything under the sun is done and over with. I now live. Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith through him in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, the reality is we all get distracted. All of these examples that Solomon's going to give of his pursuits for meaning in life are all things, you can read through the book, they're all things that we seek out and pursue in life. We get distracted. We might say to ourselves, Galatians 2.20, my life is not mine. It belongs to Jesus. I seek to honor him with the way I live. And yet the way that we actually live is we pursue meaning and purpose and satisfaction in all these other ways. We get distracted. And he's wanting us to experience this life of meaning in Christ. Some of you know I've been coaching basketball this winter, I'm coaching my two oldest kids, their basketball teams, first and second grade girls, third and fourth grade boys. And it's been interesting coaching those two age groups. There's some kids that I swear they still don't have any idea what's happening on the basketball court. But one of the interesting things about being a coach to these 19 kids that are on the two teams is I get a glimpse into the life of that kid. They get dropped off and picked up by their parent for every practice and every game. I get to interact with some of those parents. And some of these kids have great families, great parents who are engaged with them, care about them, show up, and some, not so much. And there's something that happens almost every practice, and I've seen this happen multiple times, is a kid does something good. Maybe we're doing a little scrimmage, and they score a basket. Every time, without fail, that kid, you know what they do after they score or after they do something good? They look at mom and dad. They look at mom and dad. And almost every time, without fail, and I'm not giving them a guilt trip because I have been this parent. You know what mom and dad are doing? They're on their phone. They're on their phone because they're bored. Why would you want to watch it? Trust me, you don't want to watch our practice. It's not all that exciting. They're on their phone. They're distracted by something else. And what does that kid long for? He wants mom and dad to see them, to notice them. And I think oftentimes we are like that kid. 
with the Lord. We are doing all these things, and now and then we do something good. And we want to look up at our Heavenly Father and see that he notices us. And thank the Lord that our God is not like us. We, distracted parents, by all these other things in life, our God, his attention is fixated on you. He sees you. He notices you. And I I look around this room, and I know many of the things that some of you are walking in here with. As was described earlier, the backpack that you come carrying with, the things that distract you away from the Lord. And God sees those burdens, those things that you carry with you, and he says, I see you. I see you. You might be distracted, but he's not. In Genesis 16, Hagar has just been kind of cast aside from the camp where she was living with Abraham and his family, and she's in sorrow and frustrated, and she calls out to God, and God responds to her, and she describes God as El Roi, El Roi, the God who sees, the God who sees. And I think that's a word for us, a reminder for us in light of Ecclesiastes. We pursue all of these various things, but we get distracted. We get distracted. And even in the midst of all our distractions, we have a God who sees us and who invites us to experience this life of purpose and meaning and satisfaction in him. And there is no other way. As Solomon's going to teach us week after week after week, all these other ways that we might pursue a life of meaning are only met in their fulfillment in Jesus, in him. And I don't know if that's a lesson that Solomon fully got. As we get to the end of the book, where there's some positivity toward the end. But for most of his life, Solomon was a fool who lived for his own gain. And he was very good at it. But his life had very little meaning. And Ecclesiastes is going to teach us that lesson over and over again. His life without meaning. And so as we take some time to respond, I'd like to just read from Psalm 121. And to just consider this idea that God sees us right where we're at. Right where we're at, God sees you. Cares about you, values you, invites you into this life of meaning and abundance in satisfaction in him. He sees exactly what you bring in with. He longs to be close to you. And so the words will be up on the screen. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for those words of Psalm 21. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. And I pray for us as a church over these next nine weeks 
All of us, if we're being honest, would recognize that we're distracted by various ways of seeking meaning and satisfaction in life apart from you. And they're all futile. And yet our hearts are constantly wandering toward these other things. And so right here in in this moment, God, we're saying to you that we long to put you first. And we thank you that you see us. You see the, the difficulty that's before us, the things that pull us away from you, the sorrow deep in our souls and in our hearts that pulls us away from you. And in these moments now, God, we just simply surrender to you. Help us to pursue things that aren't Havel, that aren't fleeting, that aren't pointless, that aren't vapor that just disappears. Help us to place our life on the rock, on you and your presence. Meet us in this place as we respond to you. In Jesus' name.